Hello and welcome to the Gene Therapy Insights podcast. Today's guest offers a rich background in virology and AV-based gene replacement approaches. Dr. Josh Yoda, currently a medical affairs leader at VBI Vaccines, formerly holding positions at companies such as Vertex and Unicure, where he notably supported the development of the gene therapy program for hemophilia, currently known as the FDA-approved treatment Hemgenics. Josh holds a PhD in virology from Harvard University, and he dedicated over two decades of his career advancing the scientific understanding of viral capsids and immunologic responses, as well as supporting the clinical education, both in the fields of hemophilia and infectious diseases. I hope that you find our conversation educational, valuable, and insightful. Today's spotlight is on hemophilia. Let's jump in. I would like to take a quick break to share that this year, the GTI podcast is serving as a media partner for an exciting event in the biopharma industry, the CRISPR 2.0 Congress, which is taking place in Boston from the 28th through the 30th of November. The CRISPR 2.0 Congress will showcase speakers from top CRISPR companies such as CRISPR Therapeutics, Editas Medicine, Caribou Biosciences, Prime Medicine, and the Donna Lab, highlighting topics from discovery to translation and clinical development. The CRISPR 2.0 Congress will feature over 30 presentations with exciting new data readouts from the most-watched gene-editing industry players, complemented by deep-dive workshops and expert panel discussions. Over 100 leaders in gene editing will come together to discuss how the CRISPR toolbox is expanding and being applied in a therapeutic setting. To register, visit crispr-conference.com and I hope to see you there. All right, Dr. Josh Yoder, welcome to Gene Therapy Insights Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here with us today. And I would like to start by telling a little bit more about your story and how you are related intimately to the research on viruses from your time as a scientist at Harvard University, all the way to supporting gene therapy products uh, such as Hemgenics by Unicure, and then your career as it is now working in the vaccine fields. Would love yeah, to thanks. No, I appreciate you having me on. So exciting exciting area for me to talk about. So as you mentioned, my, my background is in, you know, basic research and academia, um, did undergraduate work in biochemistry, molecular biology, started to get into the virology world from there, studied kind of enzymology there. But when I, when I did my PhD in virology, that's when I really got into kind of structural virology, how do viruses interact with cells? How do they enter cells? How does the immune system respond to viruses and things along those lines? And including that time, kind of bounced around to different labs, spent about 15 years in academic research, always focused on viruses, a lot of structural biology. And again, how, how do these things assemble and interact with cells? So from there, I transitioned over to a small biotech, um, worked on novel insulin analogs for a while, did pretty much the same sort of stuff, structural biology, biophysics, that sort of characterization of molecules. And then that's when I transitioned over into the medical affairs world where I am now. So um, for people that aren't familiar, medical science liaisons, we go out and interact with, with healthcare providers, try to 
inform them what our com our companies are doing and bring their ideas back to the company. Kind of really the, the liaison term captures that well and the information exchange of outward information and bringing information back, right? So there I started in the vaccine world, uh, spent a couple of years working on a number of different vaccines, probably over 20 different disease states, bacterial, viral, a number of different things. Switched over into the rare disease world, which we'll touch upon a little bit today as well, first in cystic fibrosis. And then from there, I switched over into gene therapy for hemophilia. So I think the most applicable part today. And then um, about three years ago now, came back into the vaccine world. So I'm working with virus-like particles again. So still kind of structural virology in that, but from the opposite end where now we're trying to get an immune response and not deliver a, a gene, like whereas in gene therapy, we kind of want to avoid that immune response and actually deliver a, an effective gene. That sounds fantastic. Um, I would love to jump in into the hemophilia since today we have a spotlight on hemophilia and would love to know again your perspective on working in this field as well as just giving a little bit of an overview of the disease. Yeah, sure. So again, you know, having a little bit of a, a feel for rare disease before this, it wasn't a complete change, but it obviously was a different disease state that I wasn't familiar with. So really had a lot of learning to do when I went into that area. And just to step back a little bit, rare disease in general, and it, it kind of gets defined differently in different countries. In general, most places around the world, it tends to be if there's less than one case per 2000 people, regardless of what your population size is. Those definitions vary a little bit in the U.S. Sometimes that's a little bit different, but in general, that's how you can think of rare disease. So hemophilia is one of these, right? And the the main kind of, I guess, two buckets of hemophilia we think about most in this country is hemophilia A and hemophilia B. So the, the vast majority of cases are really hemophilia A. So hemophilia B is even a more rare disease than A. And hemophilia A is caused by a deficiency or defect in factor eight. And hemophilia B is a deficiency or you know, lack of factor B or factor nine, sorry. <clears throat> so in gene therapy, what we're looking to do is kind of restore that function of factor eight or factor nine and get a, a normal blood cl clotting cascade uh, restored, essentially. Mm -hmm. And tell, tell us a little bit more about, again, um, the phenotypes of patients and where, when does the disease manifest? What is the life expectancy and the quality of life of these patients without the gene therapy? Sure. So Quality of life is a, a great point. It's a, it's a big factor, especially in something like gene therapy. So typically what we're looking at correcting here is people have severe forms of hemophilia. So you can have kind of a, a very severe form. You can have a mild form, a moderate form, or really a, just a, a normal, even if you're not at 100% factor level, you can have kind of a normal functioning um, clotting cascade. And really the manifestation of this is in different ways. Um, I think a lot of people think of, you know, bleeding, right? You have an accident, you get a cut, you, you can't clot, you're just going to continue to bleed. And that is the big problem, especially if you're undergoing something like surgery, you might need a, an infusion of factor to make sure that when you have the intentional cuts that you're going to be able to clot properly, right? But there are other problems. Um, I think one of the things that I wasn't really aware of so much, you know, you even think of bruising and internal bleeding that, that you need to get stopped, but... <clears throat> even without a major injury, you can have spontaneous bleeds. And typically a lot of these happens in joints and you can develop what's called a target joint and they become, you know, very painful. They can get swollen, your joints don't function properly. So quality of life can really decrease. Um, and one thing, you know, you, you really can't participate in a lot of activities. So typically our um, severe, severe hemophilia will start very early in life. 
So you can think of kids growing up, they may not be able to go out and play on a playground. They may not be able to play sports with their friends and things like that. So those sort of things, I think, really dampen quality of life. And obviously, the further you get through life, those injuries don't tend to go away. If you get one of these target joints, it can be something that's, like I said, very painful, very limiting on your activity, and that tends not to go away. So I think really these things compound the further you get through, get into life. Um, and really, it's something that we want to want to be able to treat up front and be able to avoid. And we can get into a, a little bit of the, the current therapies and how that's approached right now, say pre-gene therapy and how gene therapy might be able to help that as well. Tell us a little bit more about the shortcomings of the current standard of care versus, I guess, now current standard of care. Sure. And gene therapy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those, those obviously have very um, geographical differences as well. So to start in the U.S., um, really, we've had factor replacement therapy for quite a while now. So what that means is we can essentially make factor um, synthetically. You can more or less grow it in a lab, manufacture it, and inject that into people. Um, and again, in, in hemophilia A, that can be factor eight. In hemophilia B, it's factor nine. And there's been a number of different products on the market and ways to extend the half-life of these things. Um, there's other products that I'll mention it shortly here, but the way you can think of it is, you know, you're getting essentially intravenous injections of these things for, for the most part, and you have to get that multiple times a week, right? So you can imagine again, from the start of your life, the whole way through your life, having to inject these things multiple times a week and keep the factor level at the appropriate level throughout your life. Uh, one, obviously that's very arduous, right? You think of, I go travel somewhere, you have to store these things properly, you have to take them with you. On top of that, you're getting multiple injections all the time. So it's nice that you can treat the disease and somewhat manage it, but it's also not a, not a non-invasive thing or not a very, you know, kind of put it in the back of your mind thing. And people do get used to it fine, right? That's one thing, but it's still a lot to do all the time. The other thing is it's incredibly expensive, right? People can spend six figures a year on, on doing this sort of thing. Again, if you can get over those hurdles, that's great. But that's in the U.S. where we have, you know, relatively high level of, of health care. And you can think of many other countries that, that don't have the standard of care, either don't have the money, don't have the ability to, to store these things properly, whatever it is. Um, so they essentially don't really have that option. And one thing... It's more typical in a less severe form of the disease, but if you're in a place, again, with limited resources, even in a severe form, this might be the case where they only treat things reactively. Once you get a bleed um, and have these sort of problems, then you go in and treat with factor. What I was talking about was more the, the prophylactic approach of keeping your factor levels maintained up front. Um, there are advances, like I said, there are some things with, you know, you can pegylate proteins, things like that, that, that extend half-life. There's different approaches. So that may help draw it out a little bit more. Maybe you don't need quite as many infusions. Um, and there's a, a newer product specifically for hemophilia A. Um, it's called emicizumab is the name of the protein. It's a, a bispecific protein. And essentially in this clotting cascade, a lot, of the, a lot of the jobs of these proteins are either to, you know, modify another protein, bring two proteins together. That product in particular is a bispecific antibody that can bring two proteins together and kind of emulate the um the effect that you would have of factor eight and this allows you to do it much less frequently um another i guess problem with hemophilia is you can actually develop antibodies to these factors as well 
So, and they're called inhibitors. Um, so if you have an inhibitor of factor eight, you can't just keep injecting factor eight because your body's just going to have an immune response to it. Right. So an antibody like this is another way to get around that. Um, and it, it's worked incredibly well for a lot of people. I'm not going to say it's perfect for everyone, but it's another option that's allowed people to kind of manage this disease without continuing to, to just inject factor in there. Right. But still it's an ongoing and very expensive, um, product, just like factor replacement is. Makes sense. So it looks like it's um, constantly trying to replace the factor and having such an impact on life, uh, right. just not the best option for these patients. So tell us about the advantages of the gene replacement therapy and also why does it even make sense to target this disease with gene therapy? Right. That's a that's a fantastic question. And it's funny, in, in looking into this, I saw a reference maybe two or three years ago, you know, one of the luminaries in this field kind of wrote a review of this and said there's 62 ongoing studies at the time of gene therapies for hemophilia. So obviously I think there's a lot of interest in it. Um, one is it's a big problem, right? And it's an expensive problem. We can talk a little bit more about the logistics of getting these things onto the market, how they get paid for and all that later. But um, I think one of the things is it's a very kind of tractable problem for this. And I think I want to take a step back just in general in any sort of gene therapy, right? Today, we're talking about kind of AAV-based gene therapies for one particular disease, but I think it really drives home the point that we need to really understand the basic science. We need to understand the disease itself, the technologies, such as the, the vectors we might use to deliver, the gene, whether it's gene replacement, gene editing, all these different things. The basic science really drives what we can do. So one particular thing about hemophilia, as I mentioned, there are these kind of different levels, right? You have the, the very severe forms, you have the, the mild, moderate forms. You don't need to get 100% replacement of factor to ameliorate really the, the outcomes of the disease, right? So you might may only need to get really severe disease is described as like 1% activity or less of, of the normal activity. So if we can get people up to even 5% of activity, that's going to ameliorate a lot of the disease. If you can get them up to 10, 12 above that percentage, it, they're effectively normal, essentially, right? They, they clot like normal. You don't have to worry about a lot of the problems you get with severe disease. Okay. So I think that's one, yeah, that's, that's one reason it's really a, a, a good target, right? Um, another one is we know what the genes are, right? We can make this synthetically and put it in, but if we can train your body to make it, then we don't have to do all those infusions. We have the level there all the time. So I think um, it's just a, a handful of reasons that make this a, a good target to start with. Um, even the difference between hemophilia A and B though, right? So in this case, again, I alluded to a little bit, we're using these these viral vectors. And in this case, it's an, an adeno-associated virus. We'll talk more about that moving forward. But if you think about a virus, it has a limited coding capacity, right? You can't just put any gene in there. The biggest genes we have in our body, they're not gonna fit in there, right? So with hemophilia B, factor nine is a pretty small gene and the entire coding region will fit in the kind of cassette of DNA that we need to put inside the, inside the virus to encode for this gene. Um, hemophilia A is a little more tricky. Um, factor eight is a little bit bigger and won't actually fit in there because you, you need some other pieces of DNA in the, in the kind of viral capsid delivery um, mechanism as well. You need, um, and again, this is stuff that's come up over time that we've learned with more basic science, right? We want a tissue-specific promoter, so we only make it in a certain place. Um, some other regulatory factors that are necessary to make the protein properly and, and get used in the body. Um, factor eight, actually, the entire gene won't fit, but it has essentially two domains, an A domain and a B domain. We know that only the A domain is necessary for this function, 
to, to get proper clotting. So the B domain um, has been deleted essentially, and we only encode the A domain and the gene therapy approaches that are kind of, you know, at the forefront right now. Not to say we won't have other ones in the future that again, maybe has the whole protein, a different delivery mechanism, those sort of things. But, but right now we just have that one piece of protein. And again, having that understanding of the basic science that that's enough to do it allows us to take that approach. So there are a couple different, you know, nuances uh, among the different gene therapies, the different approaches, but even between hemophilia A and B. So, yes, so extrapolate on that uh, point, uh, why does it make sense to target this disease with a gene therapy, right? Again, just to reiterate, this is uh, a classic monogenic disease. We know the gene that is missing, the factor eight or nine is not being produced. Um, it acts primarily or being produced by the liver. These clotting factors are being expressed in the liver and then distributed all over the body in the mm -hmm. bloodstream. So it makes sense to deliver it into the liver and to make it constantly produce it with a gene therapy, right? It's a gene replacement. So the gene is missing, we put it back. Um, kind of like building upon that thought, we know that what it seems like, what I know about this disease is that the therapy is delivered into adult patients, right? And pediatric patients, I believe, are not right now considered for the delivery. That's right. Because the liver needs to grow to its full size. Yeah. But then at the same time, there is some slow turnover of cells. So is there any idea of how the dilution of the vector could impact the long-term effects and efficacy of the uh, therapy itself? Yeah, for sure. So I, I think you hit on a number of important points there. Um, certainly the fact that it's monogenic, right? If we think about what we can do in the current kind of limitations of the technology that we understand right now, it's rapidly evolving, but we, we still have limitations, right? So I think any disease like this, like you said, it's monogenic. We know the very specific gene that that is missing or defective, and we don't have to go fix that gene in this approach, right? All we have to do is put a functional copy in there. So this isn't you know, I, I think everybody's probably heard of CRISPR-Cas9, things like that at this point, gene editing type things, or even more advanced things like that, where we're looking at specifically base editing. We don't have to do any of that here, right? We're putting a functional copy of the gene in. It goes in as what's called an episome, so it doesn't integrate into the chromosomes, hopefully, uh, if we, if that, that would be an off-target effect and not something we're looking for in this approach. So we're looking just to d deliver a functional copy of this gene, make the protein, get those factor levels high enough that that take care of the, essentially the outcomes or the symptoms of this disease. So I think that's a, a very important point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I think the, you know, again, we only need to get a limited amount of activity of this gene. So it's it's even more more nuanced than just a protein level. We want an activity level and one advantage in hemophilia B specifically is there was a kind of variant of factor nine that was identified called the, the Padua variant. And it's probably five to 10 times as active as the, the wild type version of the protein. So if you have the same amount of protein, you're going to get five to 10 times the activity of the, of the factor nine activity with the Padua variant than you would get with a wild type variant. So again, that kind of lowers the bar of how much protein we need to actually be able to express to, to ameliorate the, the symptoms of this disease. So that was another kind of fortuitous finding in the development of this. It, it wasn't found in gene therapy development. It was, it was found independently, but then that could be incorporated into the gene therapy itself to make it more, more functional. 
Um, the point of adults versus kids, another very important point, um, the liver grows quite a lot in children until you become an adult. Once you're an adult, the liver's pretty stable. You have some turnover there, but it's not like you can think of many other parts of your body, skin cells, whatever, that turn over pretty rapidly. So obviously, when you put this in there, you want it to be stable expression and be able to keep that expression for a long period of time, right? That's one thing we look at in gene therapy trials is how long does this effect last? Um, so you want a pretty stable reservoir of where you're going to make this thing. Again, you're not changing the the genome. So when you make new cells, the new cells aren't going to have that episome, right? It's if you edited the genome itself, made new cells, they would have that gene and it would, it would be functional. But in this case, you can lose some of that over time. So you don't really want to rapidly turn, turn over, um, target to, to put this gene into. So you mentioned about being produced in the liver as well. So factor nine actually is produced in the liver. So that's a very natural target for these AAVs. And, um, again, we can get more into the different serotypes of AAVs and how we pick which one to use and all that sort of thing. But regardless of which one you do, the liver clears out a lot of stuff in our body. So when we put that in there and, and we do pick AAV serotypes that should go to the liver, right? That we know go there, mm -hmm. but at the same time, a lot of stuff is going to get to the liver, right? So it's a, it's kind of an easy place to target. Factor nine is naturally produced there. So it's kind of an easy way to do that. Factor eight is actually usually produced in endothelial cells. So Liver cells aren't the, the normal place to produce factor eight, but if we do produce it in the liver, it still can function. I mean, we've seen this in clinical trials that it actually does work. So, um, I think that's a, you know, a, a potential complication in, in hemophilia A, but it turns out in practice, it actually does work to send it there and to produce it there. So you've touched upon a few very brilliant points that I would like to go back to. First of all, the Therapies are delivered intravenously, right? But you said we do pick That's right. the types of AV factors that would only express, hopefully, in the liver. And I would love to just talk a little bit more about that. And especially when it comes to immune response, any off-target effects, uh, mm -hmm. as well as maybe comparison to potentially other types of treatments that could be maybe more targeted. And I wonder in which way they could be. I don't know if you can tell us a little bit about CRISPR, whether CRISPR is even considered in that field and what's kind of like the landscape of the different AVs that, is, that are used right now in development or being approved. Yeah, sure. So certainly any disease we are looking at, right, we want to be able to target the treatment to where, where it needs to be, right? So, you know, if we want a, a neurologic treatment, we obviously need something that targets the brain. So AAVs themselves, they're adeno-associated viruses, right? When we think about safety of these things as well as efficacy, these viruses themselves can't cause a disease anyway. They don't, they don't cause a disease in humans, right? So it's a good kind of base to start with. But regardless of what vector we use, it could be there are other vectors out there, right? Like lentiviral vectors. There's even herpes viral vectors these days. Um, we remove genes from them anyway. One, we need to put our own gene in there. We need to make space to have coding capacity for the protein we want to make. But also you remove genes that allow that virus to say replicate within a, within a human um, that cause disease, anything that, that comes from that. So these AAVs at baseline don't cause human disease. We take out genes. They cannot replicate. So that's one, one important thing too. It's not like we put a couple of these in and they move through the body and, and make more copies of themselves. We have to put enough in to have that therapeutic effect up front. And this is, the, again, it gets into dosing studies. It gets into safety aspects. We don't want to put too much of this in, but we need to have enough that it gets to the target and makes enough of this protein, right? So I think those are all kind of 
important considerations that, that to think about there. AAVs have, you'll hear different numbers, AAV, one, two, three. They're different serotypes, essentially. So these have been classified, you know, decades ago. And we know a little bit about the tropism in humans, right? AAV, one goes to a certain place, three goes to a certain place, five goes to a certain place, things along those lines. And that helps us target it to where it is. Beyond that, um, you know, they're, they're even in the ones on the market now, there are some that are kind of, you consider close to wild type AAV tropism. There are other ones that are proprietary that have been modified a little bit to help the characteristics of it on a whole. But part of that is targeting the right part of the body. There's more and more work on this constantly going on. Um, you know, for anybody that knows anything about something like a, a phage display library where you do a selection process, that's one approach. There are other approaches now these days using, you know, AI and how do we incorporate different pieces of different proteins that we know interact with a certain cell type that maybe a receptor is only expressed in one part of the body and not another part. We can take advantage of those, again, biological characteristics and hopefully come up with a molecule that will go where we want without a bad immune response. Um, and the immune response, as you mentioned, is, is one thing too. So many of the studies that have happened so far look for pre-existing antibodies to those certain serotypes. And sometimes if you have those, uh, that'll be an exclusion criteria that they don't want to treat those people. Other cases, um, they've looked and seen, well, you know, if you have a certain level of these antibodies, it's still okay to treat you versus if you have too many, maybe we can't. So I think there is a little bit of room for improvement there, but we already have some capability in certain serotypes, at least to kind of treat through pre-existing neutralizing antibodies. One thing with AAV though, to this point anyway, and there again is, is some work looking into retreatment right now, you're putting such a high viral load in essentially compared to anything you would see in a natural infection that your body will have a, a pretty strong immune response to it and develop a lot of antibodies to it is, is what we're thinking about in this case. So we kind of think of these as a one and done. So we want to be able to treat somebody and make sure we're getting enough kind of expression, enough gene delivery, essentially, that, that this is going to be a lasting effect. These are very, again, expensive treatments, complicated treatments. We don't want anything that's going to be, you know, treated and then disappear in six months or something along those lines, right? So like I said, hemophilia is a really expensive disease to treat. So we're the way we think about this economically a little bit is cost offset too, right? So even if this is expensive, it still might be cheaper than 10 years of treatment in a standard way. Um, other diseases maybe have no alternative, right? And then when you're thinking about cost, it's obviously it's the cost of development, manufacturing and all those things, but then it's kind of, they don't have another alternative. So you even wade into things of what's the, the cost of protecting someone's life or increasing quality of life or those sort of things that are very difficult to answer, obviously. But that gets into that kind of retreatment part, right? So for all intents and purposes right now, if we think of kind of a standard AAV, we think of it largely as a one-time treatment. Again, that may change in the future. So that a little bit is the antibody response, right? We think of antibodies as protecting us. If we think of vaccines, again, people think of, often think of the antibody response as being protective. Another very important aspect of our, of our immune system, though, is the T-cell response, right? And this is something that can really help protect us from severe disease. Um, even in the COVID vaccines these days with you hear all these mutating strains and things have changed and they avoid antibody responses. The T cell epitopes in, in COVID in all these different strains we've heard of really haven't changed much since the, the very ancestral Wuhan type strains, right? So uh, if you listen to Paul Offit talk, big vaccine expert, he'll tell you if you've had three shots, you're probably, and, and a, again, a young, healthy person where, where there's obviously permutations to anything in biology. 
you're probably still pretty well protected from severe disease because you have this T-cell response, right? So for our bodies, that's a great thing. If we're talking about putting now something quote unquote foreign or, or not, you know, native to the body in there, our body might view that as, as a, you know, a virus, an external threat and try to get rid of that. And one thing the T-cell can, T-cell responses can do then is kind of destroy infected cells. So once a virus or any other invader gets into your body, your body has mechanisms to break that down and display these antigens or short peptides on the surface of it, train T-cells to say anything that has that on it has been infected. Um, we need to get rid of those cells, right? So if we put that in our liver, we deliver this gene in there, especially the capsid genes of the AAVs, it's going to see that as foreign because your body's may still recognize the, the factor eight, the factor nine, but when it breaks down that capsid and puts it on there, your body's now going to say, this thing has something in there that we don't want. So we should get rid of those cells and not, not attack healthy cells. Right. But in this case, we're delivering the therapeutic molecule into those cells. So we're kind of tagging that cell as a, as a quote unquote infected cell at the same time that we're delivering that gene in there. So if we have an immune response and it selectively targets that, now our body's going to want to kill all those cells that have the protein in it that we need to ameliorate disease. So obviously we don't want that. And we don't see that everywhere, right? You see that sometimes in, in uh, gene therapies, but not other times. Um, the thing is, if you do get that reaction, really a, a couple things can happen. One is you can have a very strong immune response, right? And it can be a very adverse event. Um, these sort of adverse events are typically very early in the treatment within, you know, oftentimes within 72 hours of getting that infusion is when you see that, that sort of kind of response that you're worried about any side effects from. But long-term, if that still happens, it, it really can destroy those cells that are, that are um, making the protein we want. And we lose the therapeutic effect that we're looking for too. And this is managed in several ways. And the, the biggest one is um, steroid treatment which kind of suppresses the immune response. So then we kind of protect those cells. And I've seen it handled in different ways. Um, and typically, I think it was something that we didn't know about up front, right? And we saw people got the treatment that looked like they had effective therapeutic levels of protein being made. And then it kind of waned very quickly as your immune system attacked those cells. So the idea was, you know, proposed kind of use steroids. There's other treatments you can use too, but that's the most standard one, I would say, or most common one. Um, and we have seen that if you come in, if you see that kind of, I, I, another thing, really one of the bigger side effects is ALT spikes, so it, uh, liver enzyme spikes. Um, and that's a little bit of a giveaway that you're having that sort of a response. So people came in, treat with steroids, suppress that immune response, and have been able to save some of that, you know, factor activity and not lose all the therapeutic effect. Some people have gone so far as to do that kind of uh, prophylactically and put the steroids in when you initially do the treatment. Um, and it can be effective, right? You can, you can suppress that immune response, get the things in there, taper the steroids off and maintain your therapeutic effect. People have different opinions of, of how much they like that. Obviously immune suppression isn't a great thing in general. Steroids can put stress on the body as well. So you'd like to avoid that if you can, but if that's what you need to do and do it in a, a kind of temporary window to get the treatment to be in there and not lose effectiveness, then, you know, it is a, a possible approach to help get over that hurdle. To, to build up on that point, is there any possibility um, that there could be an immune response, even in a patient who doesn't seem to have, according to measurements, pre-existing antibodies to the viral vector? And I don't know if that was the case with that 
recent case uh, when a patient died with Duchenne muscular dystrophy who was treated with a gene editing therapy CRISPR, which was inserted actually in a viral vector. And it seems like according to investigation, uh, the claims are that it is due to the immune response to the viral vector itself and not to the CRISPR therapy. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think anytime you, you put something in your body, especially when you're putting a lot of something like that at a, a non-physiological level where you would see in a normal, say, viral infection or something like that, there's always going to be some risk of that, right? I don't know that case well to, to comment on specifics of it or anything, but I think certainly that's always something that we have to think about, right? It's the, the idea in medicine first, do no harm. We have to make sure things are safe. That's why, you know, phase one trials are all about safety, right? And you, you build safety up the whole way through. So obviously you want efficacy along with that. But I think safety, first and foremost, has to be there. It doesn't matter how efficacious it is. If the, if the safety risk is too big, the risk reward isn't there basically to, to do these sort of treatments. So absolutely, I think you always have to be, be wary of that. You can have unintended effects of things too. And again, I, I don't mean to make it too much about vaccines, but I know it's a very similar idea in a lot of these things. And a big part of the reason mRNA vaccines didn't come along earlier is because we had to figure out ways. It was the Nobel Prize this year, right? How can you put mRNA in a body without these sort of immune responses to it that are going to be detrimental? And once we overcame that hurdle, we figured out how to how to do that properly, right? And I think there's a number of, um, you know, instances in, in any area of research, really, but, you know, looking at unintended kind of safety consequences as well. I, again, we've talked about before the, the Jesse Gelsinger inc incident in 1999, you know, they they had this well thought out plan to do a, a do a gene therapy and it turned out when you're looking at how much you actually had to put in them they put a, a very large viral load in them obviously had a very negative consequence and really almost halted the field for about a decade really and and but that's been overcome at this point and now a number of people have gone through gene therapies you know safely and effectively and in trials and in practice now that's a really great example of where science took a step back and at the same time took a step forward, took uh, a couple of decades to really make gene therapists safe and for the FDA as well to be more open to them with now so many accelerating amount of startups in this field, in the gene editing field, gene therapy field. So it's reassuring to see that the safety has really uh, gone up. Yeah, it's a great point with the the FDA too, though, before before we move on with it. I mean, just thinking of how to even do these trials and, and you know, the what sort of evidence do you need to, to approve something like this, right? We're talking about rare diseases. We're talking about a subset of people with rare diseases that are even willing to try a gene therapy. How many people do you need? This is, it's, it's an incredibly new and complicated area. So we've talked a lot about the science and how the science is different, but so is the regulatory world. We don't have a real framework to say, you know, we need this number of people. We need safety for this long, efficacy for this long. It's a little bit of a, a learning process along the way. And um, really, you know, not only on the regulatory side, but even the patients themselves, they're really, they're putting themselves out there. You know, trials really are trials. They're not, it's not a something that we've known has worked for 20 years and you know you take this like you take a tylenol and you can expect a certain efficacy expect a certain level of safety not that things can't go wrong and things that are well established but this really is a, a kind of new and exciting area scientifically but also regulatory also patients um it's there's a lot to learn still to build up on that point um what are some caveats in evaluating 
let's just say, comparing different trials in gene therapy uh, in the same disease state, uh, but between different approaches. Uh, what are some nuances? Mm-hmm. Can we truly compare them? Yeah, it's a great point. And, and quite honestly, in any area of, area of medicine, unless it's a head-to-head trial, you really can't compare trials directly to one another. I think it's, again, in my world, medical affairs, MSLs, it's, it's MSL 101. Don't ever directly compare trials unless they were head-to-head, same patient population, same inclusion, exclusion, all those sort of things. But I think, again, in, in something that's complicated, it, that goes even further, right? And there's different modalities, again. We're talking about using AAV vectors here. There are other viral vectors, like I mentioned, uh, say a lentiviral vector or something along those lines, an adenovirus vector that's not adeno-associated virus, it's adenovirus. Those things are all different. Some things, again, a lot of the CRISPR-Cas9 is delivered with nanoparticles, often lipid nanoparticles that you can target in different ways. Um, and then the therapies themselves are, are very different, right? So you might be doing something like this where we're just inserting a piece of DNA that hopefully never integrates anywhere. It's sits there, makes the protein, does one thing. We have the gene editing capabilities that have different advantages and different disadvantages. Um, it, there's, there's just so many different aspects to it and we're figuring things out still, right? So I think even if it's the same approach though, there are multiple programs, right? That have used AAV specifically for hemophilia B, AAV specifically for hemophilia A, and even comparing one of those to the other, they're, they're different things. Um, they are, they're, you know, they're going to be subtleties even in, within the, the DNA itself. Maybe the promoter is a little bit different, whatever the case is, that make, that make them different, right? I think you have to look at clinical outcomes very much and, and do the best you can and decide what's best for your patient. But even within one study, every patient's different. Every patient's going to react differently. And it's very important, obviously, on the safety side, the efficacy side, to monitor those patients very closely. But I think the variability in, in biology in general, in human biology, it's really very difficult to say anything definitive. And again, we're working typically with pretty small patient numbers. So it's not like we go out and, you know, have something again, whether it's a vaccine or you're looking at heart disease, it's more common, things like that, where you have a really tens and tens of thousands of people that you can look at that data and kind of make, even though patients are still different in those, in those disease states, you can have some global trends and kind of bigger data to look at. You typically don't have that in gene therapy. It's just such a kind of individualized, you know, treatment. And I think, you know, to me, that's what makes it exciting. I think gene therapy, cell therapy, precision medicine, this is the future of medicine. And, and even though we say rare disease is pretty, you know, uncommon in one particular disease, there's a lot of people with rare disease. <laughs> yes, you think of rare disease as a whole, it's, it's still a big group. And that's not to say that you can compile any data in that way, but there's still a lot of people affected. And I think these approaches, even though they're very individualized, are still going to have a, a large impact across the you know, population of, of our country and the whole world. This is such an excellent point, especially in this new state of medicine the, where we are targeting truly patients with precision, what is called precision medicine, right? Uh, very much. Understanding each patient's story in, in the clinical trials for rare diseases, orphan diseases, where the disease population in a clinical trial as compared to something that is a common disease like cardiovascular or diabetes, where it could be hundreds, hundreds of patients in a trial. Here, sometimes we talk about uh, dozens, just a few dozens of patients, and any of them could have those differences within a clinical trial where 
uh, you know, these patients needed to be found. They needed to be properly diagnosed. They all may have different um, levels of, again, devastation that the disease, disease has brought them, levels of um, their phenotypes, phenotypic expression, again, severity, um, how young those patients are, where they are in their disease progression. So when all these differences come to mind and truly just to reiterate your point and to build up on it, uh, there's no way to, in a clean manner, to compare between the trials. You really need to look into the details and the devil is in the details. And um, sometimes when you look at these individual stories in the natural history, both of this specific disease as well as of that specific patient, you could see that often these patients are vulnerable to many other diseases, and this also comes in the picture when you are running a clinical trial so that it may impact, again, the efficacy and safety measurements. And as much as you want to evaluate, sometimes it's just not possible to even know what has happened to a patient, uh, you know, to have a proper follow-up. Um, so I think, again, the clinical trials in the rare disease field uh, continuously being advanced and uh, I think it's in a way golden standard for for the other trials that are still to come. So with that, I wanted to uh, pivot a little bit and talk more about your personal experience when you worked at Unicure. And I know, of course, through many questions that we already touched, uh, you have shared quite a bit uh, about your knowledge, but I would like to touch upon your just intimate connection with the disease state with uh, patients, with clinicians who treated these patients with hemophilia, and what struck you the most in that experience? Yeah, again, I think anytime you come into a, a new therapeutic area, it's, it's very much a learning experience. And I think you can come in and you might have some, you obviously have the, the biases of your previous, previous experience. You might have some expertise. They don't, but ultimately, the patients, their providers, their caregivers, they're the ones that know this disease, that know what they need, know what their pain points are, what benefit are they looking for, what other things that you might think are benefits that they don't care about, right? So I think hemophilia very much is, is I would say, I think this probably applies to some other therapeutic areas, but this one very much is patient-driven. And even the providers will tell you, we don't go tell our patients what to do. We ask them, we, we provide them all the options, all the information, but they really drive the decision-making. I think this is one area where you might hear this term shared clinical decision-making, right? It's the, it's not an authority or, a, or a, even a provider telling the patients what to do. It's very much of providing them with information and, and asking them, you know, what do you think is best for your lifestyle, your situation? And very much so, this isn't just an individual disease. It affects everyone, right? It affects their families, whether it's a, a caregiver, a parent. Again, you know, a lot of times this does affect young people and maybe they're not gene therapy candidates immediately, but they're, you know, maybe someone who thinks about it down the line when you're thinking in the gene therapy world. But I think this, this disease state is very much driven by patients, I think is one of the, one of the real takeaways. And They've had some very negative experiences with the pharmaceutical industry in the past as well, right? So the early factor replacement was isolated from blood samples, right? And before we knew about things like HIV, Hep C, there were contaminated samples that really caused a lot of problem there. So they're justifiably, you know, cautious of of new treatments and things like that that come come along the line, even if they trust that you're doing things in their best interests experience says that maybe you don't know everything and maybe we have to be cautious about things. So I think that's another 
probably a little bit of a nuance in this field versus some other fields. Um, even the way that a hemophilia treatment center, right? So a lot of rare diseases have very specified kind of expert treatment centers, right? So when I worked in cystic fibrosis, there were CF centers that had a number of different doctors in there. Um, and not just doctors, again, doctors, nurses, social workers, the whole aspect of life for these people and very much a hemophilia similar, uh, hemophilia treatment center is kind of where, where you go to, to get the real expertise and a lot of treatment. But even the way they fund themselves is different than a lot of places. A lot of times they get the factory themselves and sell it to their patients. And that's kind of the funding mechanism and, and a little bit of the, you know, how do we fund even seeing these people, helping these people in different ways is, is funded through that mechanism. So obviously when you think of gene therapy, right, it's an expensive thing. Like I said, it, it offsets costs, but that completely changes how they run their business now and maybe how they can take care of their patients. So I think all these different factors that you may not think of when you're just thinking of, yeah, this is cool science and this can, this can help people. There's a lot of real world factors in it too. In our country specifically, if you think about people, you know, paying for medicines, right? It's, it's often thought of as a, a very high cost country and a lot of companies focus here because they make a lot of their money in the U.S., then maybe Europe, and then in other places, you know, it, it kind of tends to get a little bit cheaper if you want to get it to those places because they don't have the resources, all these factors that go into it. But it's also very fractured here, right? So some places have single payer systems. You can go show them if I, if you spend this up front, you're going to have this cost savings over time, if the efficacy works, and there's so many different models of how to try to do this. But if you go here and, and I'm on, you know, health plan A and you're on health plan B and I go to health plan A and say, look at all this money we can save you over time. They say, well, if I pay for this now and they move to health plan B, then they get all the savings. So there's just so many different nuances, I think, in, in the way the essentially the patients think about medicine in this world, the way the providers think about how to help them, the way the economics work, whether that's within the institution itself or through a payer. Um, it, it really is a fascinating, but very complicated world. Absolutely. Uh, I think the field is truly still trying to figure out how to deal with the compensation, with the reimbursement and um, which patients are uh, evaluated for the therapy. Yeah, very much. There is another great point that you made, which um, I think, again, brings up the question of the FDA regulatory filings, as well as the attitude that the FDA takes with this new therapeutics is that this is often, this is not um, an oral drug. This is not a pill, right? It is something that is infused in the body. It requires specialized treatment centers. It requires very well-trained stuff and often it requires the level of quality of the purity of the product as well as the temperature at which needs to be stored that um, there is a big uh, emphasis on the manufacturing right and on the quality assurance with the manufacturing of the gene therapy therapeutic so with that again it's just uh, a whole other story of approval of this therapy and I imagine for the patients as well we you know, commonly focus about talking about the scientific approach and how this works on paper. But when you truly look at the approval and how this happens in, uh, at the treatment center when the patient comes in for the therapy, again, so much is the devil is in the details again as to whether the stuff is strained, whether the product is still functional, whether it was stored at the right temperature and delivered properly and distributed properly in the body. 
So this is just another great point as to how it makes gene therapies much more complex as treatment approaches at the same time, much more um, futuristic and the future is here now and truly a, often a one-time treatment that leads maybe not yet to full cure, but so much closer to it and uh, such a great modification of the disease outcomes. So we're approaching the um, end of our discussion, and I would like to give you the stage to tell us any thoughts about future perspectives, your ideas about, again, the impact of the gene therapy for these patients in hemophilia, as well as maybe the field overall. Sure. I, and I love your quote about the future being here. One of the, my favorite people to follow kind of in the AI and medical affairs world always says, there, it, and it's not his quote either. It's a, it's a famous old quote, but the future is here. It's just une, unevenly distributed, right? It's not that these things are going to come. They're going to come. Stuff is here. It's just a matter of who has access to it, who's taking advantage of it, those sort of things. And I think it does reflect a little bit. And I think it's probably all through rare disease, but especially again, the hemophilia, they, they kind of have these very specialized centers, right? And, and that's good because again, it's a very complicated thing. Like you mentioned, all the manufacturing nuance and all that sort of thing, but even how do patients get there, right? I grew up in a rural area with not great healthcare, right? How would I ever even find this sort of a center? Um, if you're familiar again, you know, gene and cell therapy, Chimera that's on the market, a CAR T treatment for, for, you know, blood cancer, essentially the first pediatric patient in the world is from my hometown. I followed that whole story and saw how that got navigated from our kind of local area to a a little bit bigger regional area and then ultimately to Philadelphia where this was developed and these sort of things. And yeah, so I think, I I think those sort of things, um, so her name's Emily Whitehead. It's a very famous story. Now she has a a big foundation. She actually just enrolled in Penn as a student this year. You know, she's seven, eight years old when this started and it's a a leukemia that typically is very treatable, right? So you go, you get this treatment. Most of the time it's going to work. When it doesn't, though, when it's refractory to that treatment, there were essentially no options at the time. Um, so I grew up in central Pennsylvania near Penn State's main campus and kind of 50 miles past the middle of nowhere. Um, she gets referred down to kind of the, the big regional place that, that had any expertise in cancer was in Hershey. Well, that's where Penn State's med school is, maybe two hours from where I grew up. Had that initial treatment. Again, ended up not working out. Luckily, they knew about the, the treatment in Philly, a couple, couple more hours away, um, got into this, you know, this trial. What else are you going to do at this point? There's no other options. Had plenty of side effects along the way. I mean, just listening to the story, having young kids at the time, it was hard to even follow. It was just, it was gut-wrenching. I can't imagine what their family went through. But in the end, the treatment worked. And the side effects she had, again, you talk about these immune side effects, things like cytokine storms. And thankfully, people that were associated with the trial were friends of the of the doctors in the trial, knew of some other drugs that weren't even indicated for that that could take care of the, the side effects. Again, I think it reflects the going into this new area and so many unknowns and and trying to deal with things that are, you know, unanticipated, but you have maybe another another way to fix that. And it's not always going to be this happy ending where the first person that, that went through this, you're going to figure out how to do it. You're going to have these place, these cases, like you just mentioned in this other gene therapy trial with death and things like that. And it's, we're iteratively trying to get better. Right. And I think that comes back to this point of, you know, where we see the field going and that sort of thing. And I think we're going to continue to make improvements. The, 
I don't care what technology you're in. We're more focused on biotechnology in this case, but the rate of change and the rate of acceleration of technology keeps increasing. So I think, again, things like AI applied into this field, we're already seeing new, new ideas, um, acceleration of R&D, those sort of things. And that's not to say everything is going to be perfect the first time, or AI is even some sort of panacea here, but all these different aspects of it, right? We figure out more technology. We learn more about the biology. We bring these things together. I think it's only going to get more and more precise, uh, more and more effective, hopefully more safe along the way. All these sort of things. I think that the gene cell therapy, precision medicine aspect is, you know, really endless possibilities, but that's not to say it's going to be a, a smooth line, right? There's going to be fits and starts. You're going to two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. That's, that's always the case. It's reality, no matter where you are. I think in this world, you can't quite equate it to the, the tech world where people just like to go break things and see what happens. You can't do that with humans. Um, you have to be far more careful and do things in a, in a much more, you know, kind of prescriptive way and make sure we're safe along the way. But I do, I, I have a ton of optimism. This field is only going to continue to get better, treat more things, treat more things better. And I think, you know, we've alluded a couple of times to things like say heart disease or diabetes, even in that world, right? Look at what GLP-1, you know, molecules are doing these days and, and how they're improving not only diabetes, but, you know, weight loss and, and cardiovascular disease and all these other things that are associated with it. And I think even within that, that's still kind of population level things, right? We have one drug largely going in one dose to pretty much all the patients out there and the doses can be a little bit different. You can play with that. But I think the more we understand about biology, the more you can tailor even an off the shelf medicine to each individual patient, whether that's because they have different comorbidities, a different genetic sequence, a different, you know, even weight-based dosing and those sort of things. I, I, I think we're only going to get better at this stuff over time. And I think one of the things, you know, over the years here, we've been collecting so much data in different areas that we, there was always this big data problem of how to process it and think about it. And that is an area, I think things like AI, machine learning, whatever aspect of that, I think can really help us at least come up with ideas, right? I'm not saying they're going to generate and have the answer right away, but they can really identify things and trends and data that we might not see as people because the data is just so big. And then we can go test those things. And I think that's always the key is that you can come up with great ideas, but you really do have to test them, show the efficacy, show the safety, and then, you know, kind of iteratively just keep getting better there. This is such an exciting perspective. And I'm also truly excited to see what AI is going to do in the field, especially in the field of rare disorders um, and looking into how we can design better trials. How can we um, do better statistics on those trials as well? So this is extremely exciting. Uh, precision medicine is extremely exciting. And uh, I'm glad to be uh, in the forefront of that field. So, Josh, thank you so much for sharing your incredible perspectives, your wealth of knowledge with our audience today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, of course. It was my pleasure. Honored to be on. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of GTI Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode and found new insights for yourself. If you like the episode, please press like, subscribe on your favorite platform. Your best support will be sharing this episode with colleagues and friends. For the future content, comment below with suggestions of guests to interview and questions you would like to be answered. Once again, GTI Podcast is a media partner to CRISPR 2.0 Congress this year, which is taking place in Boston on November 29th, 30th. 
come to network and learn from the leaders in the field of CRISPR medicines, such as Editus, CRISPR Therapeutics, and the Donna Lab. There will be over 30 new data presentations, deep dive workshops, and lots of new ideas. To register, visit CRISPR-conference.com. I hope to see you there.